You're listening to From Woke to Work, The Anti-Racist Journey. My name is Kamala Avila Salmon, and I gotta be real with you. A black square on your Instagram does not make you an anti-racist, but there is a path. Join me as I guide you from becoming aware of racial injustice to actually doing something about it. Whether you're an ally ready to take action or just a Black person looking for someone else to answer all those ally questions, you're in the right place. It's time to go from woke to work. Hey guys, welcome back to From Woke to Work, the anti-racist journey. I'm your host, Kamala Avila Salmon, and I want to level set where we are in our journey since we took a bit of a detour in the last two weeks. First, to take a WTF break and process the white Trumpian insurrection at the Capitol, and then to talk about the importance of relationships in the quest for anti-racism. I really hope our discussion on relationships is one that you will take with you for the rest of the journey and apply it to all of the remaining steps. But now we're moving into the back half. We've already made the case for and talked about the limits of awareness, sympathy, and empathy when it comes to advancing racial justice and getting to a more effective and useful form of allyship and anti-racism. But honestly, even without knowing that this funnel exists, many newly woke people will sort of stumble through these levels almost unconsciously. They usually come naturally if you're paying attention. But the next three steps do not. The next three steps are rarefied air. Now, by definition, a funnel always gets less populated as you go deeper into it. Many are called, but the chosen are few. And this level in particular, reflection, is probably the one with the steepest amount of drop-off because it's about going beyond the facts you know and the feelings that you have and finally confronting yourself. Now, for non-Black people, and especially white people, this can be the most challenging step of all. Because at this point, you have to stop looking outward and start looking inward. You have to go beyond, how could that police officer shoot that unarmed person? Why doesn't the media cover Black victims fairly? How do my Black colleagues ever manage to compartmentalize enough to be productive at work when the news is filled with Black death? you instead have to turn your questions internal. What role do you play in white supremacy? None of us sits outside the system. We're all in it. You may not be the police officers that take Black lives or the DAs that fail to prosecute on behalf of those lives, but that doesn't mean that you don't play a role too. At this stage in the journey, aspiring allies and anti-racists need to be asking themselves questions like these. What does it mean that I'm just now getting active in the fight for racial justice? What has prevented me from seeing this sooner? Why have I been silent? What is the state of my social circle and my work circle? Are there Black people there? Why or why not? If I say I'm an ally, what am I doing to show that? Would the Black people I know agree that I'm an ally? If I say I am anti-racist, what's my evidence? Would the Black people I know agree that I'm an anti-racist? Do I think I should be leading in the fight for racial justice, or am I willing to follow Black people? Am I organizing in spaces where there are no or few Black people around? Who am I turning to for education 
on race and anti-Blackness. Are those voices Black? Am I talking to my white friends, family, colleagues about race, or am I only speaking to people of color about it? These questions can go on and on and on, and that is the point. For the prior levels, my mindset has largely been that you should feel comfortable to move quickly through them because you want to get to action as quickly as possible and not get stuck in your feelings. But this is a level that I think you need to let marinate for at least a few beats. Now to unpack this level, I invited two women who've been actively invested in reflection as white allies in the fight for racial justice. Ashley Abercrombie is an old friend of mine. We met when she was one of the pastors at a multiracial church I attended in LA. And I sent her a pretty bold email asking why the church seemed comfortable talking about and praying about everything else that happened around us except for police brutality. That email paved the way to a deep friendship and I've been constantly inspired by her commitment to speaking up about racism and calling out for justice in all the rooms that she's in, especially within the Christian community. Her book, Rise of the Truth Teller, and her podcast, Why Though, are musts. Caroline Brown is a C-suite exec at a major healthcare system and university in her home state of South Carolina. Known for being direct and outspoken, Caroline uses her voice and her privilege to advocate for social justice and mental health. Recently, with the support and encouragement of her husband, Jason, Caroline launched Up To Us Project, a platform and book club concept focused on encouraging non-Black people to educate themselves on the Black experience, reflect on their own contributions to systemic racism, and take action from a place of knowledge and understanding. Ashley and Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to From Woke to Work. How are you, ladies? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Same. I'm doing well. I'm so glad to be here with you. Thanks for hosting this podcast. Thank you, ladies. So, I mean, first and foremost, I just want to get into it. So I put this level in because I think it is probably one of the most skipped. So many aspiring allies don't even realize that this step should exist. For some of them, they just found out about racism and that it's really, really bad, so they're ready to get to work. But can you talk about why reflecting first on racism and the racist system around us, and in particular, your own role in it, before you start to engage in allyship and anti-racism is so important? Ashley, let's start with you. Well, I think the only way you can really apply wisdom is to have understanding. And so sometimes we skip the understanding part and try to immediately apply wisdom, but without understanding, wisdom cannot be active in our lives. And I do think that part of being a white person in society is that for the most part, we're raised and taught and steeped in this idea of supremacy. And so it can be difficult for many white people, not all, but for many white people to step back and not lead, to just take time to learn, to listen, instead of thoughtfully coming up with ideas about how they're going to lead and how they're going to do something and what action steps they're going to take. But we really do have to have understanding before we can apply wisdom. And so stepping back, not leading the way, researching, understanding, talking to people is the first step to be able to actually go the distance with anti-racism work. Yeah, totally agree. Caroline? Yeah, I love that, Ashley. I agree. I think sometimes white people have a reticence about claiming racism as a white people problem, and it really is. And I think that in order to 
operate with a level of authenticity and to come from a place of understanding, you really have to look at the ways in which the environment around you has sent messages of white supremacy throughout your entire life and how you have absorbed those, sometimes even unconsciously, and then applied them in ways that are harmful to Black people and other people of color without even realizing it. And so I think all of us have to start with this acknowledgement and recognition that racism is in the very air that we breathe. I mean, it is just a fact of life. And I honestly think, I'll go out there and say, I honestly think that there every single white person is racist to a degree. We all have work to do because we've grown up and benefited from the system from day one. And the first step, I think, is really understanding and gaining that empathy and sympathy that you've talked a lot about so far on the podcast, but taking it to the next level is saying, how has that impacted me? How have I taken some of these beliefs and applied them even unknowingly? And what are some action steps I can take in my own life in order to begin to root out some of those biases that maybe have gone unaddressed? Yeah, I love that. I'm wondering if you could actually go even a little bit further and just talk about what have been some of the more challenging or unexpected realizations that you guys have had as you've been engaged in your own practice of reflection on the system? Hmm. I grew up in a more diverse environment. I grew up in North Carolina, and you would expect potentially in the area that I lived in for it to be all white people, but that was not the case for me. And my brother and I went to an all-black daycare because, you know, we don't talk enough about how class and gender intersects with race. And I think that makes a big difference because you can grow up in different neighborhoods where you're connected to people. But because of how I grew up, I would very often say as a young person, and my friend Andre Henry often says, this is just how the 90s were. People would say all the time, you were taught to talk about race by saying, I don't see color. And so I for sure grew up like that. And I was like, wait a minute, all my friends don't look like me. I genuinely don't see color. We're all the same. Look at us. And it wasn't until I got in my mid-20s and began doing more justice work that I actually fully understood how important color was and also that I, I needed to stop saying I don't see it. I mean, you don't go to Target looking for a shirt talking about you don't see color. That's not how this works. It's a very obvious good difference. It's something that we're each given at birth. Nobody has any control over it. It's a beautiful God-given identity. And I think for me, learning to talk about race and learning to realize that I don't see color as an inappropriate response to race and it is very dismissive. It allows for systemic structures to flourish that are harmful to people. And so for me, having that realization was really powerful. And it started, again, by research and studying. I began to look at the criminal justice system in America because I was about to become a prison chaplain. And that is how I discovered, wait a minute, race seriously matters. And then in my own background, having had seven warrants out for my arrest in the past, and most of them, again, it's related to poverty because I didn't go above the poverty line until I was 27 years old. And I couldn't miss work in order to go to my court dates. So very often I would just be missing court dates so I could pay my bills. And so because of that, getting into the criminal justice system myself and realizing I've never been arrested one time, even though I'd been pulled over with warrants out for my arrest, and then becoming a prison chaplain and about one in six people were there picked up on a warrant. And the only difference between them and me was my skin color. And so that was a real awakening where it was like, hey, you can't, this is not, not only is I don't see color not true, but it's also unacceptable response to racism. It's an unacceptable response to discussing difference. And that was a real game-changing moment for me. I'm so glad you called that out, Ashley, because you're right. 
that used to be the approach that everybody was pushing was quote unquote colorblindness. And it drives me absolutely nuts to your point, not only because it is not true, you obviously see color. And if you do not, you should definitely seek some medical assistance, <laughs> right? We, we should figure out why you don't see color. But more than that, sort of like an excellent way to take no action on racism is to try and not see race. That's the perfect setup for leaving everything exactly as it is, but operating as if the system is functioning naturally and normally. So I just think that is such a great one that we can just knock down for those that are listening who maybe have thought that this is a positive thing to say, how they engage and see themselves when it comes to the racial systems in our in our country and in our world. Please do not claim colorblindness. It's not helpful. Caroline? I totally agree. To piggyback on that, and then I'll share some from my own experience as well. But I had a friend recently comment on a social media post explaining how she has bought black baby dolls for her child and they don't see color in their family. And it led to a really productive discussion about why colorblindness is harmful. So I definitely think that there's still a lot of that leftover from the 90s. And we need to definitely continue to address it with our white friends and family and colleagues who think that's still an appropriate response to the issue at hand. How'd she know those baby dolls were black if she didn't see color? Exactly. Pretty remarkable. Good point. Yeah. So I, I grew up also in the South, which it's interesting, Ashley, I didn't realize that you grew up in North Carolina. And I actually grew up in a home where we did see color, but not in a positive way. So I grew up in a home with at least one parent who was overtly racist. And obviously that has impacted me in both positive and negative ways. I think in a lot of ways it helped me generate my own voice early on and talking about these issues, even as a child, because we were in a situation where we lived in a predominantly African-American neighborhood in downtown Charleston. But my friends that I played with down the street weren't allowed to spend the night at our house. And so I began to make these connections at an early age and had exposure to that. So I have had no qualms about saying, I know that I've grown up in a racist environment. I know that there have to be leftover remnants of that within myself and how I operate as a human. And so just taking a more proactive approach, knowing that that was an issue in an environment that I grew up in, I think has been really helpful. Some of the realizations I've had over the past 10 years or so since I really started doing this work and thinking more intentionally about my contributions to this and the environment in which I grew up in was realizing that there are several instances where things like cultural appropriation and my own white silence have prohibited me from doing the right thing in the moment. And one thing that I've really adopted, especially recently, is that if something happens and you don't address it in the moment because it makes you feel uncomfortable or you're concerned about what people's reaction will be, if it's still bothering you within 24 to 48 hours, you should have a conversation about it with that person. And that has been a really, really helpful tool for me, especially in recent months as the social justice movement has really picked up and there's been a lot of conversation about this is that it's okay to sit and marinate. And if you didn't have the ability or courage to respond in the moment, take some time, self-reflect. That's what this whole episode is about. 
and then address it after the fact, because I think it's still just as meaningful then. Yeah, gosh, that's so good, Caroline. I feel like that's another white supremacy lie is that you have to get it right all the time and that you have to be right all the time. And so part of doing this work is doing exactly what you said is undoing those lies. I don't have to show up to the table perfect. I don't have to have every conversation, have all the right words in order for it to make a difference. And if I need time, that is a normal thing. (laughs) It's very normal to need time to think or to engage in conflict in healthy ways. These are all normal things. I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah, I love that too. I mean, I think for me, what it really comes down to when we're talking about reflection is that if you don't really engage in reflection first, while you may be able to show up in some instances as an ally, it may not always be in the right ways. It may not always be in ways that are truly helpful to the cause. To your point, Caroline, it may be like rushing in to like respond to something in the moment and maybe not responding correctly not responding in a way that actually honors the cause that you're speaking up for. So I think that it can be a number of things that can sort of be an obstacle to really being an effective ally when you haven't done reflection first. Your actions may be purely surface. They may be largely performative. They may be perceived as inauthentic. The Black community that you're attempting to labor alongside or on behalf of may not find your efforts particularly useful. They may not feel a connection to the work that you think that you're doing. Your actions, sometimes I think in this case, usually end up serving primarily one purpose, which is making you feel better about whatever is happening, but not actually moving the ball down the field. And oftentimes you can end up even doing more harm than good, though as far as you can tell, you have the best of intentions. And so Caroline, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about your Up To Us initiative, because I think it's so powerful to sort of aid that reflection with knowledge and actual information and education and encouraging non-Black people to do that work on their own and to be proactive in that work. In the last episode, we were talking with one of our guests. I use the analogy of veganism. So I know a lot of people who've converted to veganism, right? Very few of us were born into it. I'm not a vegan, just to be clear. One thing that I've noticed is that people take that practice very seriously and they take it upon themselves to learn every single thing that they need to know about it. How do I get through breakfast? What happens if I travel? How do I get protein? Is this vegan? Is that vegan? They're not afraid to ask questions because they're like, I'm committed to this and I want to get it right. And if they accidentally eat a piece of something that's not vegan one day, they don't decide, you know what? Forget veganism. They show up the next day and they're like, great, that's off the list. So that's the level of proactiveness and commitment and discipline that I think that people who are committed to allyship and anti-racism need to take on. So can you just talk a little bit about Up to Us and in particular how your relationship with your husband led you to taking a more active role in this social justice movement? Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy. It's like, I'm going to hate on my my friends who do CrossFit. It's the same way, right? It's this cultish level of dedication. And my friends who are vegan as well. It's like, if only we apply that level of energy to racism, holy cow, it would be incredible. So a little bit about Up to Us Project, and thanks for asking. As a part of my own self-reflection, specifically after George Floyd was murdered, I began talking with white friends and family about what the barriers were to getting more involved in these conversations and to playing a a more active role in their own lives. 
And I heard three themes over and over again. One was, I'm so afraid I'm going to say the right thing. That's the lie that Ashley mentioned earlier. So I'm going to say something wrong. I'm going to offend somebody. So there's no point in even trying. The second was, honestly, I'm really embarrassed and ashamed that I don't know more about this topic. I don't understand Black history. I haven't cared enough to follow along. So there's just that embarrassment and shame component that you have to get over. And then the the third theme was, I'm so overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. This is such a complex issue. And to me, those three things are understandable, but they're excuses. And when I began talking with my husband, who is Black, about these themes that I was hearing from from white friends who were reticent to get more involved in the movement, he provided some really great input and feedback because he was like, Black people talk about race all the time. I mean, we talk about it amongst ourselves. If we're comfortable with a white person, we talk about it in front of white people. This is not a taboo or new issue for us because we live with it every day. And so he and I did some brainstorming and I told him that I felt like in my journey, I needed some additional structure and accountability and that I thought that some type of group concept may help me stick with this to get back to that commitment about veganism and CrossFit, right? Is having that kind of accountability. And so I figured if that was something that I needed, that other non-Black people needed it too. And that's how the Up To Us project was born. And it's really based on how do we educate ourselves, take the onus, it's up to us in order to learn and gain that knowledge so that we don't have to put the burden on our Black friends and family and colleagues to learn about something that we should already know about and that there are inordinate amounts of resources already publicly available for free. So how do we just use that what's already available to us and take a little bit of initiative and begin to address this ourselves. I love that. I love the piece too about accountability and community, because I think that to one more time, pick on our analogy around veganism and CrossFit, for instance, very few people go down those roads by themselves, right? They usually very quickly are like trying to get connected with other people who are committed to the same lifestyle that they are so that they can learn what they know, avoid common mistakes, learn how to stick with it when I don't feel like going to the gym that day. And so I think when it comes to allyship and anti-racism, people who are serious about it really need to find a community of people who are also serious about it because trying to do this work in isolation, especially as a white person trying to be a single island of allyship in the in a culture of white supremacy is almost a recipe for failure. You're going to have to buddy up with someone to hold yourself accountable because the ways in which the system operates and sort of enrolls you in it are often so insidious. It's very easy to miss. So speaking of community, Ashley, I want to talk about the Christian community. So you and I have had a lot of conversations about this. I will say this continues to be such a source of consternation and frustration for me personally, because I just don't know how a religion founded by a man who, by all accounts, was a radical, justice-loving hippie can afford to be silent on issues around racism, power, and privilege. But here we are. Can you just talk a little bit about what it's been like for you as a Christian woman to try and advance a conversation about race and racism in Christian circles? Yes. Well, I agree with you. I mean, we don't have a white Jesus, no matter what the pictures are hanging on your wall. 
those are not accurate. <laughs> you know, like this is a Middle Eastern man, a brown Jesus that we follow. And I think it's really important for people to understand the faith that we've inherited. But the problem is most people don't. And the problem is that we have not, through our antiquated education systems, through the way we do community and identity in America, and it's so tribal and so unwilling to bend and unwilling to learn. And all that is inherited. So many people do not think critically about their faith or critically about their life or their relationships or their connections. And so it is not easy to love the church right now. I mean, the public witness is like, are you kidding me? I mean, most of the time I don't even tell people my connection to faith. I mean, I've been in clergy leadership for almost 20 years now, but until I've earned some trust, I don't even mention it. You know, it's not the first thing I say when people are like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I, I, I write. You know? <laughs> <laughs> There's immediate assumptions if somebody discovers that you have a history of evangelicalism or you're a pastor in some way, shape or form or some type of clergy leadership. So I get why people are frustrated. It is extraordinarily frustrating. And I think that one of the ways that I've been able to advance this work is to one in the multiracial church where I met you, where we connected, race really was something that they were open to talking about. And justice issues were big. I mean, I was the outreach pastor. We led a huge community development movements around tutoring and homelessness and all these different things. So I've been blessed to be part of churches that were open to justice issues. And then when I moved to Manhattan for the first time in four years ago, it was actually the first time I really discovered evangelicals who were like very anti-talking about race, very anti-talking about justice things. I would get called political. I would get called a Marxist, a communist. And I'd never experienced that before in my faith. So I was like, what is wrong with these people? And their idea of following after justice issues was going on to Breitbart and listening to Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro. And you're like, Who, what are you doing? You know? And these are Christians. I'm like, use your brain. But we have all these things. Again, when you inherit all this stuff, you have stuff like confirmation bias, right? So you're looking for resources that are going to tell you what you want to hear. And hearing things outside the evangelical faith, you're taught that you're right. And being right is more supreme than being love. And pride and greed tend to lead so many evangelicals. And again, that's not everybody. I know I'm broad stroking because I'm part of faith communities and have been and know people who love Jesus truly and are about justice missions in the world. But I think people are really struggling in this season and they're so very tribal. The last thing I would say about this is Dr. Janet Holmes does amazing work around racism, and she has these steps to autonomy. I think there's six steps, but in the middle of them, there's two where people tend to branch out. A huge disrupting issue happens. Let's say it's Emmett Till or it's George Floyd, and people with my skin color who are white tend to have this awakening moment where they're like, wow, I'm going to go against my tribe. I'm going to go against my community because this is wrong. And then they have to go on this process, this journey of going from that space of tension where you have left your community or perhaps have even been ousted by your community because now you have different beliefs or you're questioning the beliefs that you inherited about, I don't see color. We're in a post-racist society. America's equal. What are people talking about? And the bootstrap mentality that we carry here that's so huge in the working class of America. We have all that stuff and we start to question it and we go, wow, is this still true? Is this still real? Does God care about race or is this a, a still don't, I don't see a color thing. And then people have to make the decision to go into autonomy, which is I'm willing to leave my camp 
and become autonomous from them. I can still love them, but they no longer have the right to make up my mind and they no longer have the right to decide who I'm going to be in the world and what my connections are going to look like. And many people, because of that tension, don't make it. It's like the boomerang effect. They, they stretch all the way out and then they pull back to their tribe or they stretch all the way out and they make it. <laughs> they keep going and they can build new community and they can be part of spaces where they're not right. They can be part of spaces where they're learning and where they're growing and where brokenness is a value, not a weakness. And so I think that takes a lot of work. But despite what you see in the media from all the pastors who are constantly surrounding the president and who are upholding all these very harmful, hurtful values, there are great churches doing great work. And so I think as a Christian, I have to focus on who's doing good work (laughs) and not the media narrative that we see. Because on the ground, there's not these greedy pastors. Most pastors in America are bivocational. They have less than 200 people in their faith communities. It's It's not what you see on the news where people have houses and cars and doing all the things. And so I think I have to focus more on that in the Christian community because I have seen change and I have seen people go the distance and become autonomous and learn to think for themselves. (laughs) So I do believe that it's possible for us to be able to grow beyond what we see in the news. And I apologize to everyone also because it is embarrassing. And I'm just so sorry that you have to see it. It's, It's hurtful. It's harmful. And I'm sorry. Hopefully, I think everyone just heard one of the reasons why we are friends is that you're such an amazingly reflective and just accountable person. But I think that there are really lessons for all communities. You started from religion tends to be tribal. And we know that, I think it was Martin Luther King that said 11 o'clock on Sunday is the most segregated hour of the week. But you know what? I would say that's not just a church thing, right? That is a neighborhood thing. That is a work thing. That is a school thing. And in general, one of the things that I reflect on a lot is, so I've had a lot of conversations with non-Black people about race. And especially for my white friends, they talk about growing up in spaces, oftentimes that were almost 100% white, and also never talked about race. And so you arrive in the conversation oftentimes feeling like you have an informed position on whether race or racism is real, having not actually lived in spaces with people of color whom it might affect. I would consider my opinion on racism to be a little bit more informed than a non-Black person or than a white person. And yet we're not given the deference often to say like, let me tell you if it's real versus you tell me if it's real. And so I think that level of humility for white communities in general to recognize what does it mean that I haven't been connected to people of color or to black people for most of my life? What does it mean that I'm not connected to them in my school or in my neighborhood or in my work? And where might that be creating blind spots that I'm not even aware of? I may think that I have an informed opinion, but maybe I'm missing something. And I just really think that's such an important thing for people to marinate on. And the reason why I'm such a believer in reflecting first for non-Black people who really want to be useful is that in general, in our society, self-reflection and introspection are in short supply, right? This is not just a racism thing. This is just, we don't like to do it. We're such an instant gratification culture and we love a good and fast happy ending. So the second a white person especially feels newly woke to the horrors of racism, they just want to solve it. They don't realize the ways in which their own instincts to solve it 
might actually be informed by hierarchical and unproductive views on racism and on race. I think many white progressives really fall into a trap where when they become aware, they can almost jump into a white savior mentality. And the problem is that they haven't first addressed that racism is not just out there, is also in here. And as a Black person, it's also in here too. I have many, many moments when I realize that I have bought into systems and narratives around Black respectability and needing to show up a certain way and needing to speak a certain way. And that's me as a Black person living in Black skin, having relationships with lots and lots of Black people. I sometimes have those moments where I'm like, oh, I need to catch myself right now. And so very recently, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, and we were talking about an an issue at work at a prior company I worked at. And I was saying, you know, I really think it's important when important business decisions are being made that we need to have decision makers of different races in the room. And she was like, I get you, but said, but doesn't that just mean that we'll just have different people of color in the room all advocating for their own interests? And I was like, maybe, but why do you assume that the white people already in the room aren't advocating for their own interests? Why do we assume that white leaders can be objective and they can decide on behalf of everyone neutrally, right? But Black leaders, Latinx leaders, Asian leaders, they can't do that. We trust white people to be neutral, which I have no idea why. We have very little evidence of this. But we will often entrust a white person to be neutral on an issue, but assume that people of color are biased. So when people of color talk about racism, sometimes you'd even hear back in the responses, well, you're just biased. Of course, you'll say that. And it's like, but who would know? So it was one of those things where I was having that conversation with her and I would consider her in general a very conscientious and conscious person. And while I didn't hear the aha, I felt it. There was a silence. And she was like, I'm I'm processing. And I think that these are the kinds of conversations that non-Black people need to be having with each other and with themselves about why do I have the beliefs that I have? And why do I think that I might on my own have the solution to racism? Why would I expect to lead on these issues? Where do I need to build my capacity and to build my own resilience to be able to show up to the table ready to fight, knowing that I'm not going to always have the answers. So I'm curious if you guys have had or have witnessed maybe either your own aha moment or someone else having a real aha moment that sort of was like made them look at something they had seen time and time again in a different way. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I have an aha moment a day these days. I really do. And and I don't know if that's because just more attuned to it or talking about these issues more, but this is an aha moment I had some time ago, but had a close friend recently who, who shared the same one, which I thought was really interesting, which is this whole concept that America is not a meritocracy. That I think is mind blown emoji for a lot of people to get their heads around. And it took me quite some time too. And as a part of self-reflection, okay, I am a cisgendered, straight, white woman who is reasonably attractive by European beauty standards. Sure, I've worked really hard. I've gotten good education and all of that stuff. But I think for a long time, I failed to realize how much all of those things that are beyond my control have positively impacted the outcomes in my life. And so if you look at that the other direction, you say, well, oh my gosh, think about all of the things that 
a black person can't control about their skin color and a number of other items that, like I just mentioned, that compound and have a negative impact on their outcomes. So it's been really interesting to have that conversation with friends because I tend to surround myself, I'm sure like you ladies do too, with ambitious, hardworking women who want to get stuff done. And sometimes we're we give ourselves too much credit for the success that we've been able to achieve without taking into consideration the ways in which the system has benefited us. So, and I had a white male friend who recently had that aha moment about things not being a meritocracy. And he and my husband had a really interesting conversation about how he'll get the benefit of the doubt if he makes a mistake and Jason won't. And it was a really beautiful conversation to have and to see that light bulb go off. Yeah, I love that. It is most certainly not a meritocracy. It is definitely not. I think for me, one of the things that I started doing years ago is walking into rooms and counting. And as silly as it sounds, I would walk into rooms and being a part of the field that I'm in is very male dominated. And so because of that, I'd walk in and be like, how many women are in this room? And I'd walk in and think how many people of color are in this room? And that helps me be brave enough to have conversations because I'm like, this is wrong. Like I can remember walking into a session of pastors and there was a hundred people in the room. There were 11 women and I counted nine people of color. And now we obviously know that sometimes people can have lighter skin and be a person of color. So perhaps I was wrong on the number and I'm, I, I will recognize that. But what it led to is I approached the person I was paying money to learn in this setting, my own money, by the way, okay, not my organization's money, my money. And so I sat him down and just said, Hey, this is so inappropriate. You have 11 women and I counted nine people of color. Maybe there's more, but I got counted nine and I'm spending my money to be here. So I want to know what are your values as an organization? Do you value women? Do you value people of color? Why aren't they in the room? And that led to some really great conversations. And he was very humble, which is rare. I was going to say, how did that go? Man, so he was Latin American. So he's like, you know what? You're right. And we don't have this women thing right. And as a matter of fact, we haven't even arrived in the right places with our female theology yet. And he said, when it comes to people of color, we're only just now beginning to really invite people to this table. And I want you to know I'm sorry. And I said, well, how committed to this journey are you? And then how fast is this going for you? He's like, it's moving pretty slow. And I was like, well, until this speeds up, I'm no longer going to invest my money and my time here. I think as a white person, you do have a voice, even if they don't do anything, they're hearing it. Somebody is letting them know. And then same with a job that I went into. And I realized when I got hired on the staff that it was an all white staff and I had no idea. We had been hired from out of state and the organization as a whole was pretty diverse, but the the staff was white. So one of the first conversations we had was why in this city, is this an all white staff? Please help me understand. I don't come from this type of working environment. This doesn't make sense to me. I really need to know where you're headed with this. That's part of how we leverage privilege. It's like, I'm not going to attack people and tell them, this is so dumb and just get really upset and angry about it, right? Because that's ineffective. And sometimes I do that, okay? Sometimes I have a rant or two. That's fine. But for the most part, you have to go in and say, have you thought about this? Do you understand how this affects people? And that's how we can leverage privilege to have good conversations to move things forward. Yeah, I love that. So before we wrap up, I want to tackle an FAQ. So a frequent ally question. So this is one that I've heard come up a lot amongst aspiring allies and anti-racists during reflection, or it might be the one that shuts them down when they start reflecting. So 
I've heard people say a lot that the words white privilege and being accused of being racist really rubs them the wrong way. And their argument is usually, but my parents weren't rich. My ancestors came here, blah, blah, blah. Or I've always been raised to treat people fairly. And of course, I don't see color. So this is a two for one. Can you guys talk a little bit about this question? Can you have white privilege even if you weren't rich? And can you still be guilty or complicit in racism if you have never acted in ways that you yourself see as individually racist? Ashley, I see you nodding. Yeah, I am nodding because I'm like, yes, yes, absolutely you can. <laughs> so I actually really love this question because I didn't grow up with resource and means. And I was the first person in my family on both sides to go to college, which I didn't finish, by the way. My brother was the first one to finish at a four-year university. I lived below or at until I was 27 years old. So I actually really understand where this notion of what are you talking about? I don't have privilege. Are you kidding? Everything I have, I've had to work for. Because you can't buy a house if you don't have generational wealth in America. You know, you can't do basic things that other people can. If you don't have an education, you can't get paid certain levels and move through corporate systems. And so I can understand the initial notion of why people would do this. And one of the things I send to people, and I always have to apologize to a lot of people for the title of the article because it's harder to hear and harder to read, but it's called Explaining White Privilege to a Broke White Person. And it's this beautiful article by Gina Crossley-Cocoran. And in it, she lays out her history, her background. She comes from the Rust Belt. And she talks about how they literally did not have running water in their house. So this is a level of poverty that is so difficult and so hard to overcome. And again, that's why I think it's important when we're talking about race to also be talking about gender and class because all these things have intersections and people can see themselves more in each other when you begin to understand how you're connected and how certain policies affect you, how certain systems affect you. Poor white people are just as devastated by white supremacy as as poor people of color. And it is it is much harder and much worse for people of color. And at the same time, white people are devastated by the system of whiteness. And it's okay to help them wake up to that. So one of the things she talks about in this article is she goes through what are some privileges that you might have citizenship, the class, sexual orientation, sex. If you're born male, you have privilege, period. Ability, you know, whether you have learning disabilities or physical disabilities, gender identity. And so she goes through these different things that we have access to. And I think it's important for people to understand that just because you grow up poor doesn't mean that you don't still have privilege. And you said this so beautifully earlier, Caroline, when you talked about just even how you fit a beauty standard that the world thinks is a good one. And so same for me. Nobody ever assumed I was poor when I was 27 years old. You know, like no one ever thought that about me. They would think immediately because of the way I look that I have certain resources, that I have certain means, that I have certain capacity. And so I think it's important for us to understand that skin color certainly impacts the way we move through a world, the way we move through communities. And I could choose if I wanted to, to be in spaces where it's all white and I can always find myself in a book. I can always find myself in a character. If I want to buy something for my children and I want them to see themselves very clearly, I don't have to look very hard to find that. And so, yes, we can still have privilege, even though we grew up in economics that were difficult and we can still support white supremacy systems and especially that bootstrap mentality, right? where you're like, well, if you just made better choices, then you could have the life that I have. No, you can't. That's not actually how it works. So I think helping people really understand this, but yes, you you can still struggle with privilege and still struggle with racism and upholding those systems as a white person, even if you come from difficult economics. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll add to that a little bit. I mean, there are a few moments throughout my life that I can very clearly identify that white supremacy got the best of me, right? And I didn't do what I should have done in the situation or I did something I, I shouldn't have done. But even if you're if you're not at that point, if you're a white person, you're not at that point where you haven't identified anything like that, that you've overtly or even subtly done that you think might have been a product of the system and environment in which we live in. I think there's an opportunity to really think through the way in which the system has benefited you and the way that by default, you have gotten certain advantages or opportunities that others may not have gotten. I also think it's it's really important to think about the way in which you may operate in a system impacts other people's beliefs and actions. So when you are in community with other people and you're a person of privilege, you may not be doing anything that's overtly racist, but just by not including Black people and people of color in the conversation or not identifying issues that impact a group that may not impact you directly, people see and hear that. And I think that's all demonstration of the way in which racism can creep in, even if you think you've held it at bay. Yeah, that's so right. One anecdote that I think about a lot is if I were to tell you that there was a young man or a young woman who grew up very poor, started as a bagger in a large grocery chain and was able to rise to be the CEO, without me telling you anything about that person's race, I think you would safely assume that that's a white person. And we know this because we know who our CEOs are. Those are some of the things that are public. And so for people that have challenged seeing white privilege or thinking that white privilege is only about money, I would say how many total rags to riches stories that do not include media and entertainment are you aware of just in your surroundings that are stories of people of color? Unless only poor white people are able to or interested in working hard that something else must be operating. What would account for 95% of Fortune 500 CEOs being white? What would account for that? Actually, I did say we were going to wrap up, but I do think that there's one other area of reflection that Caroline and I actually talked about. So I just want to share it with our listeners. So Caroline's Up to Us project has been very intentional about making sure that the authors that they're reading as they're getting educated about racism and specifically trying to understand how systemic racism works in the U.S., that they're centering Black authors and Black voices. And so this is something that she and I talked about, and i had been reflecting on it as I was saying, I'm on my journey as well. Two or three years ago, the first book that I recommended when white people said they wanted to learn more about systemic racism was White Fragility. I think it's a fantastic book, right? It's so deeply introspective. It's so hard hitting. But one of the things that I've even become more aware of over the last couple of years is, is that the first place that I want to point people or should I be pointing them to a black voice? And it's so, so important to think about even things like this, because the analogy that I use for this one is what if I said that the foremost authority, the person making all of the money, the person who's the headliner at every single event in favor of women's rights and feminism was a man. I think that you would feel really uncomfortable with that. Yeah. And I also would not be going to the event, frankly. I think when you say it like that, it just, a light bulb goes off where you're like, 
oh, I see. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need men in the movement. It doesn't mean that they don't have anything to say. It doesn't even mean that they can't say things to men that are perhaps more effective. But do we want the number one authority on women's rights, the one who is making all of the bank, who's getting all of the book deals, all of the speaking engagements, to be a man where we're trying to advocate for women? No. And so I think that even thinking about how those tiny moments of reflection that you have, just taking a quick step back, not getting defensive, not saying, oh, you're saying that you don't want Robin to... No, I'm not saying any of those things. I think Robin's work is amazing. But I'm saying I do think that we should think about centering Black people if we want to learn more about Black experiences. And that shouldn't be an inflammatory statement to anyone. All right. So I think that we could probably talk for another several hours, but I'm going to be respectful of your time and our listeners' time. So I just want to thank you so much for joining me today and sharing so much of your personal experiences and reflections and just being vulnerable and authentic and accountable and putting yourself out there. I know that's very, very difficult. And so before we go, please tell the people where they can follow you and find out more about your work, Ashley. Awesome. Well, thank you for having us and hosting this conversation. You're one of my favorite people to listen to and learn from. So I'm so thankful and so honored to be here. So I love Instagram the most. So I'm over there a lot at Ash Abercrombie. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And my book is Rise of the Truth Teller. If you want to pick that up and share more of my story, it's in bookstores everywhere. And we'd love to have you journey with me. (laughs) It's a great book as well. Caroline? Yeah. Thank you so much for the conversation, Ashley. It's been fantastic connecting with you as well. So look forward to many future conversations. We can be found on Instagram at, at up to us project. So that's pretty easy. I'm, I'm new to all of this platform stuff, but would love to, to see folks over there, especially if you're interested in hosting a book club chapter of up to us and would love to add more people to that community. We, we try to provide a, a monthly discussion guide and a little bit of support and resources for folks who are willing to host a group. So check us out over there. All right. Thank you, ladies. Now, next time, for those of you who've been tuning in regularly, you already know where we're going. We're going to talk about the flip side. What are some of the limits of reflection? Once again, reflection is awesome, but it is not our destination. And we need to go further if we're committed to driving change. Till then, though, I encourage you to all spend some time in reflection about your own place in a white supremacist society. No matter what race you are, you have a place and you play a role in some way. Once you start, you'll find that there are layers and levels. I'm your host, Kamala Avila-Salmon, and this has been From Woke to Work. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining us and for making it this far. As always, I'm Kamala Avila-Salmon, and you can follow me on social media at TheRealKS1. Subscribe now wherever you listen to podcasts, and don't forget to rate us to help more people find the show. From Woke to Work was produced by me, Kamala Avila-Salmon, in partnership with Julian Lewis and TJ Bonaventura at StudioPod. Edits were made by Lab. Our amazing artwork was designed by Tommy Gomez. And this fire track I'm speaking on was produced by Dave Contrap. Until next time. <laughs>